If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. Nonviolence is the most potent weapon available to the Negro in his struggle for freedom and justice. I think for the Negro to turn to violence would be both impractical and immoral. I would hope that we can avoid riots because riots are self-defeating and socially destructive. Author Priyanka Kumar returns to continue our conversation about Martin Luther King Jr. and Gandhi. So, you know, we we tend to, to think of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as an American hero, but in truth, he was, you know, he had a global presence as a human rights activist, you know, a humanitarian. Uh, winning the Nobel Peace Prize certainly proves that is one measure of that. Um, the research shows that Dr. King traveled over 6 million miles. I mean, can you just, for us just to wrap our minds around that, between 1957 and 1968, beginning with a trip to Ghana to celebrate their independence from British colonialism. So when Dr. King you know, traveled to India and he said, and I quote, to other countries, I may go as a tourist, but to India, I come as a pilgrim, end quote. What, do you, what, what did he mean by that? I mean, you know, um, it, it, it turns out that um, later in the speech, he, 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 he said something else, which, which for me really crystallized um, the meaning of that quote. Uh, he said that for him, India means Mahatma Gandhi, and that Mahatma Gandhi was a truly great man of our era. And so um, it, it's, it's, it's very moving, Nina, that um, Dr. King took um, Gandhi's philosophy, his, his experiments, um, his movements, his failures, his successes to heart in this way, uh, to the point uh, that he said, India means to me Mahatma Gandhi. And, and at that time, in 1959, when he visited India, 
you know, Mahatma Gandhi had passed away about uh, 11 years back. He was assassinated by a right-wing um, Hindu uh, for trying to make India more secular. Um, at that time, Mahatma Gandhi was still a very strong force um, in India, spiritually, um, even though he, he was no longer alive. And um, the love, I think, that uh, Dr. King experienced in India uh, is a real testament to that. Um, and uh, the fact that Dr. King said that he came to India as a pilgrim uh, is a testament to how deeply Gandhi's philosophy, but not just his philosophy, his life, his way of living, his message of love, deeply, deeply impacted Dr. King and, and the civil rights movement. I mean, I think, you know, I, I used the metaphor of that gold coin earlier that uh, Gandhi forged, and on one side of the coin is nonviolence, and on the other side is love. I mean, I think that Dr. King, so to speak, used that gold coin as currency to fire up the civil rights movement in this country. Sure, it's, it's definitely absolute. And you know, sometimes when people hear the word love, especially when you are a freedom fighter, and it is no doubt that both of these men were freedom fighters, they were liberators. Sometimes, Bianca, people say, well, love is, is weak. You know, what do we... What do we say to that? That they would think that the methods that both of these incredible human beings utilized in pursuit of human liberation is weak. What do we say to that? You know, it's it's interesting. Uh, Gandhi always maintained that his movement. Now he called it satyagraha, which means truth force. He. And, and this is the movement that's fired by love. He he always maintained that satyagraha is a weapon of the strong. And, you know, and, and why is it a weapon of the strong? I mean, I think that comes back to um, to all the internal work that Gandhi had to do to not respond to violence using violence. I mean, you know, you were talking earlier, Nina, about how it's maybe we consider it to be, this is natural, this is in us. You know, we get angry <laughs> when there is injustice. But I mean, I think this is this is what is so revolutionary about uh, Gandhi's approach is he's saying that it's actually harder to not get angry. It's harder to use love but if you're a strong person, then you can do that. So what's the implication of that? If you're a weak person, go ahead and use violence because you, you, are not yet, you do not yet have the internal resources uh, to pull yourself together and use love instead. So he flips that on us. I think there's a righteous indignation there. I mean, there is certainly a righteous indignation there that he... To use anger, to, to have a righteous indignation, but you channeled that anger into a type of action that manifests itself in strength through using love, you know? And, you know, in, in, in Dr. King's uh, famous I Have a Dream speech, he says, uh, you know, we, uh, we will always take the dignified stance. We will not go down the path of violence. We will not resort to physical violence. 
So we will not go down that path. <laughs> you know, we will take the upper path. It really does take a lot to do that. Um, how did how did Dr. King uh, view the struggle of South Asians fighting imperialism compared to the fight for freedom and equality of African-Americans in the United States? I mean, I think he certainly saw them as his brothers and sisters, and that really comes across um, when he was in India and he interacted there with... Um, you know, Gandhi's grandson and and really got to know uh, deeply what had gone on uh, in that movement. And again, um, you know, essentially these movements have a, a thematic similarity. And, and Tolstoy in his day, I mean, and we're talking about uh, 1909, pointed this out um, that... Um, that if we, again, this comes back to inner resources, if we recognize our inner resources, if we recognize the force that's in our soul, then we can fight injustice. So it's the same thing in India where, you know, Tolstoy said, how is it possible that uh, a few thousand Englishmen can rule over, uh, you know, a few million Indians? It's not possible. Uh, if the Indians realize uh, their inner resources, they can overthrow the British. And Gandhi took that message to heart. And the Indians overthrew the British. And then Dr. King sees that happen. You know, there, this is, again, it's, it's uh, you know, brothers and sisters. It's the same thing happening in, 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 in America. Yeah, I mean, the liberation struggle is universal. I mean, really. Yeah, the stru struggle for freedom. And, and, and Dr. King's epiphany was that once uh, the African-American brothers and sisters recognize um, the deep resources, soul resources um, in them. Yeah, it's like a magnet, right? It has to happen. They have to get freedom. They have to get it today. <laughs> you know, there's, there's no, I mean, he, uh, it's, it's not a question of, oh, they're let, let them, as he says, let them let off some steam and <laughs> it'll happen some other time. No, it has to happen today because we recognize that we're equal. We, we recognize. And what binds us together. Our history. Well, love is certainly the most powerful force. Uh, in the universe and that soul force that you uh, reminded us that uh, Mahatma Gandhi talked about, that the, the whole world moves by love. I have to say, indeed, Priyanka Kumar is the author of the novel Take Wing and Fly Here, as well as the writer, director, and producer of the documentary Song of the Little Road. Priyanka, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Nina. It's my honor. Welcome back to Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. I'm Nina Turner. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had an inner circle of advisors that reads like a who's who of civil rights leaders. Andrew Young, Ralph Abernathy, and Jesse Jackson, just to name a few. One person in that circle had such a profound impact on Dr. King's work 
And that person was Dr. Dorothy Cotton. Now, Dr. Cotton was the only female member of the executive staff of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, SCLC, and became one of Dr. King's closest colleagues. Her position in his inner circle put her at the forefront of the civil rights movement as an educator, a planner, an activist, and a leader. To learn more about this civil rights giant and her impact on the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., we are about to speak to Rowan Martin. Rowan is the host and managing editor of Rowan Martin Unfiltered and is the author of three books, Listening to the Spirit Within, 50 Perspectives on Faith, Speak Brother, A Black Man's View of America, and the first President Barack Obama's role to the White House as originally reported by Roland S. Martin. Roland Martin Unfiltered is the first daily online show in history focused on news and analysis of politics, entertainment, sports, and culture from an explicitly African-American perspective. Roland Martin, it is so good to have you here with us. Hey, what's going on, Nina? What's going on? So, Ro. All good. It's all good. You know, you 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 had the honor of conducting the last interview, I believe, with Dr. Cotton, uh, the one she gave, yeah, in twenty eighteen. Yeah, yeah. I think it was the. I think I think I think it was her last. I think it was her last one on one interview she had done. That was a documentary uh, that was done for NBC in advance of uh, MLK fifty, which was the fiftieth anniversary uh, commemorating his assassination, and. Um, uh, we we started planning for that in in uh, twenty seventeen. Uh, I had a sh- I had News One Now Daily Morning Show on TV One, and um, they decided to cancel the show in December of twenty seventeen. We had already interviewed Janona Clayton, um, Reverend C T Vivian, and a couple of uh, Reverend Doctor J- uh, James Lawson. So th- so I'm like, okay, so what are we going to do, guys? What you, like okay the anniversary was april 4th and i i i wasn't getting any information no feedback no response nothing from tv one executives uh and so i was still under contract with them but i said but i said you know what what the hell so i took thirty thousand dollars of my own money and i said i'm gonna go do these interviews with these lieutenants of dr king people who were close to him um myself i'm not waiting on them to make a decision I was also very sensitive to the fact that many of our elders uh, were older and I wanted to ensure that we got their stories uh, on tape, got it on video. And so I began to reach out to different people and I had a speech in Buffalo, New York, and I'm looking at the map and I'm like, oh, Ithaca's not far so I can fly because, again, I'm tra- trying to conserve money. So I'm like, OK, so I can, I, so I can go to Buffalo. I can do my speech in Buffalo and then I can fly my videographer in. Then we can rent a car and then we can drive to Ithaca, New York. I found out that she was uh, that was a that was a residential community, retirement community uh, on the campus of Cornell University where, uh, where she was a professor. Uh, I reached out and then they said, yes, they, they, they said to do the interview. And I was like, oh, my God. So I, I can't remember how how we even got the interview. I, I don't know who I called or how that worked out. So all of a sudden, um, you know, you know, we're jumping on it. Uh, and then uh, so, so we go down. So we, we you know, we, we drive down, set the interview up. 
uh, and we we go to the facility, set our cameras up, and and, and she comes in. Uh, you know, she she's moving slow. Her 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 aide told me about her health issues that she had been having. She had just come back from the doctor. Uh, that, so, that her so mem- this Roland, this this was your first time. Then this was your first yeah. time. No, actually, it, it actually it wasn't. I did, I did not. I, I I totally forgot that. Um, when they had the MLK Memorial dedication in DC, there was a women's luncheon. It was it was packed. It was I mean thousands of folks were there, and um and I and I remember because I was I was going around and I was you know talking to people, and we were and I, you know my Angela was there. I mean I mean all all the names were there. All the who's, who's, and, and yeah. I and I and I remember walk. I was walking by this table, and this woman said, uh, "Oh my God." Come here, and I, I turn around. And now, now you understand. I'm used to old black women, seasoned saints. You know, season, uh, yeah. You know, you know, uh, 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 beckoning you over, and you know, they they want to hug you and everything. And she, I have been wanting to meet you, and I'm sitting here going, "This is Dorothy Cotton. I've been wanting to meet you." And so, and so we have this just to this, just this you know this, this quick conversation. Uh, I think we took a photo as well, and I can't, I can't. I think my camera was like on the other side of the room, and I was like, "Oh my goodness!" Like we're the photographer, uh, and so we had a brief conversation. But it really wasn't until February 2018 where we actually sat down and actually did an interview and had a conversation. So that was the second time I met her, and I was just, I mean, I was overjoyed that we actually got the interview uh, and was able to confirm it because you know, again, uh, you know, a, a lot of a lot of them are just uh, just real. You know, look, look as, as they get older and 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 not necessarily want to talk they get lots of requests you know and so it was um yeah it was uh yeah i'm in fact i'm looking at an email right now sent to my producer and it says dorothy cotton ithaca new york uh two hour and a half hours away i've talked to her aide and they have consented and i was just what, excited what day was that in 2017 the, the email was february 4th my speech in buffalo was february 26th through the 28th so uh the interview with her uh was in one of those days and so man i was just i was just elated because again we we had, we, had, we had talked to clarence jones his attorney bill lucy like i said jim lawson uh and andrew young reverend jackson i mean i talked to so many different people and, and i was just i was hell-bent on on getting these voices because when I was at Savoy magazine, I was a news editor. I was assigned to do a story uh, on uh, uh, the great artist uh, out of, uh, out of Texas. It was a pre- professor at Texas of the university. And why is it escaping me right now? And they pushed the, and I never forget, I was supposed to do it in November or December. And they pushed the story to the spring. I'd already talked to him and his wife. He passed away the next month. And, and and I said, I think if he was a wise name escape me, he'll come to me in a second. I think he was seven, 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 seven years old. And I said, I will. Ne- I said, if there's any African-American who's over 70, but especially a black man, I said, and if I get to interview that, I said, I am never going to delay that interview again. Uh, and 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 that was the and I was just I mean, I was like crazed about getting his lieutenants uh, and the people who knew him on video because they were all getting up in age and so you know andrew young is 90 and I mean, look reverend jackson was one of the youngest and he's 80 and so jim lawson is 92 and fred gray is 91 now and so so that was that was just a really big thing to, to be a chance, a chance to talk i'm to so him. glad that you picked up that assignment because it's so much lost 
to history when we don't get the the oral history from the people who lived in those moments in our lifetime too. Because you know, Rose, sometimes people think when we're talking about the civil rights movement or talking about Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his contemporaries, sometimes you can mistakenly think we're talking about ancient history here. We are not. I mean, all of these people are living or have lived uh, within our collective lifetimes. So I'm certainly going to urge all of our listeners to find and watch this amazing conversation that you had. Where can they, where can they go to find it? Yeah, it's on my, it's, on my, it's actually on my YouTube channel. We, we uploaded uh, them. Uh, and what we did was we were, we, we did a lot of interviews around MLK 50. And so we went to Memphis. Uh, and in fact, uh, the uh, National Civil Rights Museum, when I told them about these interviews that I did with Eleanor Holmes Norton and John Lewis and so many others, they said, hey, can we use some of the excerpts on the day's program on the broadcast uh, at outside of the Lorraine Motel? And I said, well, sure. And so we edited the whole, those things together. And so they, we, I think I ended up doing probably 18 different interviews. Um, and these are all one-hour interviews. And, and you talk about, you know, the, the, the richness of it because they're talking about the personal stories. They're talking about, you know, just just the work and things along those lines. And one of the things that like back at like three years ago, I was sitting here going, it was April 3rd. And I said, oh, my goodness, tomorrow's the anniversary of the King's assassination. And I just decided on the whim to put together something called April 4th, 1968. And it was a literally it was literally a two hour broadcast of just recollections of all of these people about that day. And she was in, of course, talking to her. She was one of the voices uh, that was included in that. And so um, and again, when you lose the likes of Sidney Poitier, when you lose when you're losing Cicely Tyson, when you're losing our now elders uh, are now transitioning to become ancestors. It is critical uh, that, that we have those stories, uh, you know, and the opportunity to interview them and talk to them and not just rely on, you know, something that was from 10, 15, 20 years ago. We'll have more with Roland Martin on the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio right after this. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. We continue our conversation with Roland Martin, the host and managing editor of Roland Martin Unfiltered, talking about the only woman in Dr. King's inner circle, Dr. Dorothy Cotton. Since Dr. Cotton was one of the very few women to enter the holies of holy, and I'm calling it that, I think it's that even that much more important that you were able to capture her voice. Yeah. Yeah. She was the only one. She was the, she was the, she was the only one. Yeah. And so, and so it was, uh, and, and the thing is, so she, so she, it was what was so hilarious because when I asked her, uh, I, you know, when they first, uh, first meet, uh, she talked about, uh, Dr. King and some other preachers they can't come to Wyatt T. Walker's parsonage and Dorothy Cotton and the other women, they were actually serving these preachers. And she said, and we're sitting here walking with the, with the trays of fried chicken and food. And then we can hear Martin. Martin and the other preachers uh, commenting about our legs and oh my God, she told that story like five times and she's, she was cracking herself up 
talking about the story. And then she told me this great story. She said, yeah, she says, you know, people don't realize, you know, Martin loved, loved to play pool. And she said one time we had this speech and we had she said I had to go pull him out of a pool hall because he was in there talking to the young brothers about the movement and some protests coming up but he was playing pool with them while doing it and she said i had to walk in and said martin we got to go you got to stop playing pool i remember that we were walking down the street and the, i don't know if you know neighborhoods where all the african-american folk or most of them were uh, in a lot of them were in mm -hmm. the pool hall because pool, pool mm -hmm. that was the only place my dad could go right and uh so he's they all in the pool hall and, and Martin sort of pooed that. <laughs> yeah. he, he wanted to go and shoot some pool. And that was that, fam that famous photo of him in Chicago he playing pool. Get, he did go in there. He did go in there and he did shoot some pool. And I remember going in there yelling at him. Now, I can't imagine yelling at him. Now, because the, the world. You were yelling at him why? Because he was playing pool? <laughs> Y'all didn't want y'all didn't want didn't want him seen playing pool because it was time for him to be. I said, Martin, do you know it's time for you to be in the church? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he want but he wanted to get a little pool game in. Yeah, he did, and he got it in. But except that we had to go in and stop it. <laughs> <laughs> also, um, he said that's all he wanted to do was play a little pool. <laughs> but when he got in the in the pool room, oh, this makes me cry. You you wouldn't believe where his messages came from. He said it, it was almost like he, he wanted to talk to the guys in the pool hall. But I didn't know that. All I'm saying is, it's time for you to be in church. Time for you to be in the church. And he would even he would get there. And when he would get there, he didn't if I'm gonna make a speech. I don't want anybody to say anything to me. Um, if I'm going to go make a speech somewhere, I, I need quiet and all of that, you know, all the stuff some people go through when they are planning for a speech. But we were like, he was like a block or two from the church. And I, I had to rush him because it was time for him to be in the church. But there was a lot of singing and stuff like that. But he was in the pool hall. He wanted to talk to those brothers who were in there. You can say that. That sounds very elegant. It sounds very nice. He wanted to shoot some food. <laughs> <laughs> I know what he wanted to do. He wanted to shoot some food. So she was just share, sharing these amazing stories uh, about that uh, and, and her work and, and, and all that uh, entailed uh, that, that, that they were involved in. Well, Reverend King was multitasking, Dr. Cotton. That's, that's what we call that. He was getting it in. He was, you know, hanging with the bros, you know. It makes me think because, you know, Dr. King did come into Cleveland, Ohio. And as you know, Cleveland elected the first black mayor of a major city in Carl D. Stokes. And certainly Mayor Stokes loved him some pool, too. So, well, well, in, in fact, in, well, in fact, um, uh, when I uh, so Louis Stokes, uh, of course, was the congressman from Cleveland. His his daughter's his daughter was Lori Stokes, and she finished his book. And I interviewed her about the book, but also about Dr. King, who often would come to Cleveland. And King was actually there in in the hotel suite with Carl Stokes that night. Uh, and uh, and in fact, she told the story. Stokes wanted uh, King to come downstairs for the you know for for the victory party, and King said, "No, I don't want to overshadow you. So you go ahead and go by yourself." Uh, and so and, and, you know, we don't. And here's the thing that we we don't think about. You know, we don't we don't think about 
the fact that these were regular people. They weren't staying at the Ritz-Carlton in the Four Seasons. When they would travel to places, they were staying in the homes uh, of regular everyday folk. I remember doing the Selma movie screening. Some reporter asked Aretha Franklin, you know, uh, did she know Dr. King well? And she started laughing because King stayed at their house. Reverend C.L. Franklin and Aretha was like, yeah, I will go to breakfast and King, Dr. King will be sitting at our breakfast table. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with Roland Martin on the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day holiday special presented by CBS News Radio. Roland Martin, the host and managing editor of Roland Martin Unfiltered, returns to continue our conversation about Dr. Dorothy Cotton. And so Dorothy Cotton, in talking with her, you know, sharing those stories, talking about, you know, th- those personal moments. And, and she talks, she writes in her book. Uh, and we talked about this as well, about when Dr. King was um, he was um, he was uh, People don't realize he often would he often would go to the hospital to rest. He was always overcome with exhaustion. They would have to go get fluids and and he would literally go to the hospital to sleep. And and she tells the story of of going to the hospital and holding his hand and, and, and sitting with him. Um, uh, you know, in those moments, uh, it, it's always amazing because we've gotten, you know, I use this phrase and I, and, and it's not to criticize, it's not to diss him, but it's really how uh, America in many ways, white America has looked at Dr. King. Uh, we treat him like a civil rights bobblehead, like this exalted figure that who was untouchable when in fact it was a regular ordinary person. And these were regular ordinary people, people who were, who were students and, and teachers and, and communication specialists who chose to give their life to the movement. Uh, and that's really what Dorothy Cotton, Dorothy Cotton was as well. You know, this, this brilliant educator. Uh, and what people don't realize is that, and I was so mad because I didn't, I was reading her book after the interview and my God, I wish I had done it before. Uh, and, and she talks about, she talked in the book about how in, no one could join the SCLC without going through her training program. She was the director of education. And we, 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 we spend way too much time thinking about these, the civil rights movement, the black freedom movement, not realizing there was massive training that was going on. I had gotten my master's degree from Boston University and just back and forth all the time. And uh, I was married at the time, but I didn't let that stop me from doing what I felt so strongly uh, at that time. I didn't let it stop me because I couldn't, it seems like I just couldn't help. I was, because I was also training in nonviolent mm-hmm. education. And, and Martin was helping me and pushing me to do that. Uh, he thought I was a really good teacher, and I was, and, <laughs> and still am. <laughs> and so, so I would start to run a sm- a small classes and discussing this nonviolence thing uh-huh. stuff. <laughs> and and that and that was fine. So that terminology, a team of wild horses, that just kind of emerged out of the work we were doing. That was at a time when we could not use the same water fountain as you. We couldn't use the same 
a library except the end of the week we could use the library one day a week she would she and her team would assess every person and they would assess them to see whether or not they needed to be reprogrammed you had to adhere to the philosophies and the tenets of nonviolence and so you couldn't just join the SCLC you had to literally go through her education program where they would train you and teach you. And then once you graduated from Dr. Dorothy Cotton's program, then you could join the SCLC. That, that, that blew me away that they would assess them to determine their state of mind, how they view things. And they literally would say, we have to reprogram these folks in order for them to join SCLC to adhere to uh, our goals and objectives. And the, the citizenship education program as you are laying it out was uh, um, certainly her, her signature, her signature, signature project. And to hear you talk about it in that way, I mean, I think something that is lacking even in today's activism and organiz- organizing is what you just laid out, the level of preparation. Like you're not just gonna jump in here, we gonna prepare you for this first of all see if you suit it for it you know because everybody shouldn't be doing everything and then actually prepare you for the journey ahead for the assignment rather yes absolutely yep absolutely and and that's the th- and, and again we, we we just don't we, we we don't we don't here's the thing that that was always important for me I didn't get caught up in 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 just the marches and the speeches I wanted to know and understand the structure infrastructure, what went behind the movement, how they were able to build this, how they were able to create this. Uh, and so when you talk about Dorothy Cotton, you can't you can't ignore Septima Clark uh, again. And these were people who were teachers who were going to churches and they were going to places and they were and they were literally uh, it was it was just about citizenship education. It, it was just it was civics 101. Uh, and that's the thing that you could not have people marching and protesting who didn't understand why they were marching and protesting. And that to me is just the value of understanding. You cannot exalt and praise King and not then understand the role that Dorothy Cotton, Diane Nash, James Bevel, Zernona Clayton, Septima Clark. Clark, Hosea Williams, James Orange, Andrew Young, all of these people, the roles that they played in the development and the building of this movement. Yeah, and it's not, we, I mean, your point about how Dr. King is celebrated, air quotes, during the holiday and this whole, like, one-dimensional King, and we often leave out when there is an extraordinary leader that has the type of cachet that a Dr. King had because of his gifts, uh, we often tend to forget or give short shrift to the people who were in his inner circle and other great leaders' inner circle. I mean, nobody, it takes teamwork to make the dream work, literally. And people of that type of greatness who are on assignment are absolutely surrounded by people who help them do, help to mold, too. Yeah. Uh, help them do they set they 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 cast a die they they are very much a part of so everything that dr king was able to accomplish is because of people like dr cotton 
and uh, so many others. Roland, what surprised you the most in your conversation uh, with Dr. Cotton? I certainly enjoyed the, the pool hall story. <laughs> Are there any other little nuggets uh, that surprised you in your conversation with her? Um, it, 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 it was, um, it, it, there was, there was a moment when, and again, I, it's so many of these folks I've interviewed, but when we talked about April 4th um, and she talked about, we talked about what happened on, on that fateful day. And I remember asking her the question, do you still miss him? And she got very emotional and she started crying. And she said, she, she said, yes, every, you know, every day. And I've and I've asked and I've I've asked that similar question over the years with Reverend James Lowry, Reverend C.T. Vivian, Reverend Ambassador Andrew Young, and so many others. But it was you, you really could tell uh, that. So here's this woman; she was 88 years old. He had been assassinated. He had been an ancestor for 50 years. But it was that. But but it was still hard still personal uh that was something that was that, that, that just really stood out stay tuned we'll be right back with roland martin on the martin luther king jr day holiday special presented by cbs news radio Welcome back to the Martin Luther King Jr. Day Holiday Special presented by CBS News Radio. We continue our conversation with Roland Martin talking about the only woman in Dr. King's inner circle, Dr. Dorothy Cotton. Roland Martin Unfiltered is the first daily online show in history focused on news and analysis of politics, entertainment, sports, and culture from an explicitly African-American perspective. Roland any final thoughts? Uh, I, I I I would dare say, um, we 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 cannot we 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 simply cannot when when we when we think of this when we think of this annual celebration, um, when we think of the MLK Memorial, we have to go back to. King accepting the Nobel Peace Prize when he accepted on behalf of the movement. I accept the Nobel Prize for Peace at a moment when 22 million Negroes of the United States are engaged in a creative battle to end the long night of racial injustice. I accept this award on behalf of a civil rights movement which is moving with determination and a majestic scorn for risk and danger to establish a reign of freedom and a rule of justice. I am mindful that only yesterday in Birmingham, Alabama, our children crying out for brotherhood were answered with fire hoses, snarling dogs, and even death. 
I am mindful that only yesterday in Philadelphia, Mississippi, young people seeking to secure the right to vote were brutalized and murdered. I am mindful that debilitating and grinding poverty afflicts my people and chains them to the lowest rung of the economic ladder. Therefore, I must ask why this prize is awarded to a movement which is beleaguered and committed to unrelenting struggle, to a movement which has not yet won the very peace and brotherhood which is the essence of the Nobel Prize. After contemplation, I conclude that this award which I receive on behalf of that movement is a profound recognition that nonviolence is the answer to the crucial political and moral questions of our time. The need for man to overcome oppression and violence without resorting to violence and oppression. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus, starting May 1st.